with our heart, with our soul, and with all our being. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think something you said there uh, in your prayer is kind of poignant uh, in our day. In I don't know if this sort of philosophy pervades in Iran, but it certainly does here. The originality is, and and uh, what's another word? Since well, not sincerity, even uh, authentic. authentic, being authentic, authenticity, uh, and and originality is so valued and so prized that we feel like we if we're if somebody gives us the answer, if we're if we're taught by someone else, it's less meaningful, and so we're, we're we have to go back and reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, we have to learn it for ourselves, fresh from the get go, and that's very much a, a new thing. I mean, you speak of you know the, the, these fathers of the church taking this time to to really systematize. Uh, the faith once handed down uh, for all in such a way that we could we could learn it effectively but not waste all of our time going down the wrong going down the wrong roads you've got a couple thousand years of history of people uh, you know whose shoulders we now stand on well today's uh, lesson we begin the the text of the confession starting with section one of chapter one, chapter one being of the Holy Scriptures. I doubt we'll get past uh, section three or four today, and we'll just split this up into two. Section one, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased." I'm sorry, I didn't pass these out. It's written on there. Here are the handouts. So we begin with uh, Scripture. Generally, the... uh, The Confession follows the outline of the Apostles' Creed, but... in this case, they've done something slightly different. There's nothing about Scripture in the Apostles' Creed per se like this, uh, but it's not, they're not the first ones to do it. This builds upon a tradition that's already there. Uh, several Reformed confessions have put what is believed of Scripture right up front. The first and second Helvetic confessions uh, that came out of Geneva, um, the Irish Articles, uh, several others, the Irish Articles being of particular significance to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Irish Articles of Religion, those were written in 16, or published anyway, in 1615 by James Usher, who, if I remember correctly, was the the bishop of the Irish Church, uh, in, in the Church of England at that point. And 
these first several chapters of the Westminster Confession are almost the exact same as what he wrote. Uh, I don't know much about this guy, but I think he's probably someone worth looking into. He was invited to participate in the Westminster Assembly, but uh, he he didn't, and, and perhaps because he was uh, a convinced Episcopalian, he, he did not change his view of, of church government, and so he knew he would have uh, an uphill battle in what was mostly a Presbyterian uh independent and congregationalist body uh, very few people who who stuck to at that point the the hierarchical model of church government that uh, that the church of england already had but clearly the guy was the guy was uh, not only brilliant but very faithful to scripture in so many things and the fact that the westminster confession just stays right along with him for several chapters attests to that fact now Something about this, though, about the scripture being at the beginning. You, you might say, why not God? The doctrine of God, theology proper, is chapter 2 in the confession. Scripture is chapter 1, so why not God first? Well, they're making a point uh, that the other reformers uh, who, who worked on the, uh, the Helvetic confession, um, the Irish articles, and, the, and many of the other confessions as well, made that we know God only by his revealing himself to us, at least in a saving manner and in terms of how to worship God, how to approach God. So what they're doing is they're putting epistemology before doctrine, not what we know about God first, but how we are to know anything about God. So... The order here is not an ontological order for terms of existence. It's not that Scripture is more important than God. It's not that we worship Scripture. It's an epistemological order. We know God through Scripture. God, in His divine providence, in His in His sovereignty, has made us to know Him through Scripture, and so that has to come first. Otherwise, we're hopping in on the wrong road. At this time, it was very much still a hot topic. Uh, Descartes' Discourse on Method was 1637 was when that was published. So uh, you can see that, that, that epistemology was a, was a big deal. The further you go back, the less you, you see about that. Well, onto the body of this, uh, of, this, of this section here. We see the divines breaking down two different ways that we know God. One of them is through his creation. And one of them is through his word. Uh, the, this is general revelation. Everybody gets it. If you are a human being living in time and space, you know there is a God. And if you say you don't, it's because you've, you're, you're rebelling against that knowledge. But deep down and with, within you, you know there are no three-year-old atheists. Uh, you're born with this knowledge. And as you look through creation, it tells you more and more. Somebody pull open Psalm 19. I want to look at this one because this is just, this is just, it's one of two, uh, two scriptural references that what we would call the locus classicus for, uh, for general revelation 
for natural or and natural theology. Chris, can you read that to us? Uh, Nineteen one through six. Sure. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So Psalm 19, 1 through 6 tells us that everybody hears this voice. Okay, the creation screams that there is a creator. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, in his commentary on, on, on the confession, makes the point that it's, well, he only says presuppositionalist, but that's what he's getting at, that, that the confession doesn't, doesn't give us an apologetic for the existence of God. It doesn't try to give us proofs. It doesn't push us in that direction. It's, it's presuppos- presuppositionalist in, in the respect that it says that people know there is a God and yet they hate him. They're on the wrong side. They're, they're resisting the knowledge of God. Uh, they're suppressing it, as, as Paul put in, in Romans 1. So what can we learn? What can we learn from general revelation? Uh, the confession says that, that, we can, that, that the, the creation itself manifests, shows forth, the goodness and wisdom and power of God enough that we are inex- or unexcusable is the word they use. I'm not sure there's inexcusable and unexcusable, but I would imagine unexcusable uh, is it, usually that un puts more of a moral fault on somebody than the in would. Um, so the, that we would not worship God, that we would not worship him rightly is a, a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. That we would suppress the knowledge of God is a result of our natural inclination towards sin, away from God, towards autonomy, and not worship. So, general revelation, natural revelation, is enough to condemn us. And if we look at uh, Romans chapter 1, somebody pull up Romans chapter 1. This kind of answers that question of, well, what about the, the, uh, the Native American in uh, 500 B.C. who dies without Christ? Aren't they innocent? You know, that, that innocent person, why, why would they not go to heaven kind of thing? And Paul is saying here that there are no innocent people. Anybody got it? No. Go for it, Wyatt. Which verses? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, 18 and through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So men are without excuse right from the get-go. Um, Jesus 
People, people don't go to hell because they don't have Jesus. People go to hell because they're rebels against God who hate righteousness and exalt self. That's all of us. We're in that boat. And without God reaching in and grabbing us, we're, we're, we're doomed. It's not Jesus that condemns us. We're already condemned. Uh, stick, stick with me right near there. In Romans chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 16. And here, I think the, the divines do, uh, do break this down a little bit. Actually, I really don't. But you could, you, you can, um, you can see that there's two different things in creation. What you might call the external and the internal uh, revelation, general revelation of God. We see, we see, we observe things, and yet even inside ourselves, being the image of God, what's left of the image of God within us testifies to God, uh, to righteousness, to the law of God, to what is good and right. Uh, Chris, can you read uh, 2, verses 14 to 16? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So everybody has enough of God within the image of God that's left on them, their conscience and their heart, and what is in the world to be condemned before God. General revelation is sufficient for that, but it's insufficient for salvation. Continue on to Romans 3. Kelly, can you get this one for me? Uh, Romans 3, verse 20. justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin so through the law comes knowledge of sin through the conscience comes knowledge of sin so there's, there's a tie there between the conscience uh, and law general revelation and law and what you'll see in the, in, in the rest of the confession of what I think is, is permeates reformed theology and Lutheran theology is, is a law gospel dichotomy the law says do this the gospel says this has been done for you so what we have is enough to tell us what to do. What we need is for something to be done for us and for that message to come to us that we may be reconciled to God. So natural revelation uh, or, or general revelation is insufficient for salvation. We need special revelation for that. It's also insufficient for worship. Um, snag this real quick. If you look at Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 21, as we work our way through this book, I want you just to notice a concept that they sort of shot through with. It says, uh, and it repeats, it repeats this phrase, the light of nature, which it never defines, but I think we kind of know what it means. It's general revelation. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, and praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. 
But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So you see the, the confession is, is sort of seen, uh, obviously by the people that are writing it, in the way that a strict um, constitutionalist might interpret the Constitution. You don't have to have something in the Constitution that says the government can't do this. That would be an exhaustive, massive list that you would, you would never be able to finish, right? Rather, you need something in the Constitution of the United States of America for the government to have the authority to do something. And so it's limited to the prescriptive, not limited by proscription. It's not limited by prohibitations. It's limited to what it's, what it's authorized to do by, by positive command. And worship is that way. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So general revelation is insufficient for worship. When natural fallen man tries to worship God, we see some really horrible uh, things happen, right? <laughs> I don't remember what you guys were talking about this morning, but sacrifices came up and uh, as Tracer Gracie said, what kind of sacrifices? And the other one said, human sacrifices. But, but that's what people do, right? When, when we talk about worshiping God, people come out with uh, cultic prostitution, um, human sacrifices, all kinds of things. Ballet, I don't know. Uh, but what the confession is saying here is that we are not to worship by simply doing what we want to do for God, but what God has asked us to do for him. Annika, be grateful. I'm not even going to bring up the plates. Remember? Washing the dishes. Yes, yeah. Yes. It's, I'll tell that story later. Annika's sick of hearing it. It's not a true it. one. It's not a true story. It's a, the, it's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical uh, fake story. It's a parable. <laughs> it's a fiction. It's a fiction. So... Uh, Next heading, special revelation, biblical theology, God revealing himself in his, in his word. Uh, it certainly exists. Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 3. Chris, if you could pull that up. Sakina, if you could pull up 2 Peter 1, 21. The whole thing here, and I think it's probably worth stating is that God has spoken. God has revealed himself. We should not go through our lives and the life of the church acting as though he has left us without instruction. And yet much of the church, what's called the church anyway, today seems to be doing just that. And if they recognize the scripture as having any value at all, it's in simply recording other people's religious experiences. You will not find the confession remotely referring to the scripture that way. It's not simply the recording of somebody's religious experiences. It is the word of God, which ought to be believed on the authority that it is the word of God. Chris, go ahead. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So God has been revealed through history in the Old Testament, the prophets and the law, and that was good. It told us a lot. But we have this capstone achievement of revelation being the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the exact imprint of God's nature, has revealed God, the Father, in a way that is far superior to anything that came before it. And then the Spirit empowering the apostles to exposit the further meaning and implications of the life of Christ and the revelation of Christ is given to the church. Second Peter one twenty one. And uh, Peter himself recognizes Paul as be, uh, Paul's writings as being Scripture, which he even says some are hard to understand, and, and the wicked twist them to their own demise. This special revelation is absolutely necessary for salvation. It's necessary for salvation, and it alone is sufficient for salvation, which must be revealed. Sakina, can you jump to Hebrews two one through four? So, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a given by angels thing in there. And, and if, you go, if you go and study, there's a lot of the New Testament that confirms the idea that the, the Mosaic Law was not given by immediate revelation from God the Father to, to Moses, but it was angels he was speaking through. Which you don't think is, is, at least in English, people make the argument that in Hebrew, you can see that um, in, in the actual stories themselves. Uh, but certainly, what you have in the rest of the New Testament confirms that. But in, so, so there's a lot of punishments, is his point. If, if you disobeyed the law of Moses, you got whack, right? <laughs> I mean, in a lot of cases. There's, there's a just recompense. The Son of God himself has, has, has come to earth, been incarnated as a man, has condescended unto us to speak in our language face to face. And if we neglect that, how much greater of a judgment would there be? Much, it's, 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 it's a bigger deal, right? 
Okay, so uh, what they've also put in here in the, in the confession, that afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. You might look around and say, well, you know, we have the scripture and things are still bad. And the counter to that would be, imagine how bad they would be without it. Now, the divines use several uh, proof texts, which I think I mentioned uh, last week. They, they, they didn't want to put proof texts in here because they didn't think proof texting was an adequate method in terms of, of, of in making doctrinal points and, and, and interpreting scripture. But later when they did come in and add these proof texts, uh, you can kind of see where they were reasoning from and what they were thinking. Uh, preserving the truth, Isaiah uh, 2.20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to these, it is because they have no dawn. And so preserving the truth within the church, within the covenant community, we are to test teachers, we are to test doctrines by the written word of God. Uh, propagating the gospel, John in his, uh, in his gospel as well as for the epistle of 1 John mentions that he writes these things so that people may believe. Encouragement and comfort, Romans uh, 15.4 makes, makes this point. Um, I'm just going to, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm going to try to get through maybe section two or three here. I'm going to kind of breeze through without reading too much of it. Romans 15.4 is a great one. Go back and look at these. Um, and defense against enemies such as the world, flesh, and the devil. Now, what it continues to say right after this in terms of committing it to writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being ceased. So the word ceased is where we would get secession, and in this case, we're not talking about spiritual gifts or miracles and stuff per se. We're talking about uh, the revelation of God's will extra-biblically. Okay? Does that mean that God never tells people to walk to the other side of the road where they meet somebody and witness to them? No. But what we are talking about is God told me that uh, this church needs to start meeting on Thursdays, allow me to have five wives, make me your supreme leader, and if you do this, you will all be blessed with Rolls Royces. Now, that seems a little bit excessive, right? But it's probably not that excessive if you were to you know, cut and paste different tapes of prosperity preachers over the last 50 years, and if you were to take a look at what the the divines were reacting to in their day, which was the Anabaptists in the 15 and 1600s. They went as far as doing some of these things. They weren't looking at the church fathers. They were reinventing the wheel, and they went, you know what, I don't, I don't see any, uh, like any prohibitions or anything in the Bible against polygamy, so let's roll. This sounds like a good idea to me. I'm sorry, can yeah. the Anabaptists believe in polygamy? Not all of them. Some did. I mean, that happened. They did. They did. Uh, I can't remember which city it was in Germany. Uh, there was an Anabaptist revolt, and they took over. And the leaders, in particular, because they were the leaders, got the most wives. But it, it lasted for a year or two before the the royal armies. Uh, okay, but it must stop your flow of teaching. Yeah, 
It happened. A lot of, a lot of weird things happened. And the point that the, that the divines are making here is that there's, there is a similarity in principle which is identical between the Anabaptists, the radical reformers on one end, and the Catholics on the other end. So whether you're getting your new revelation from God via a council of 70 people and a pope that meet for a few years and put a bunch of things down and then the pope recognizes it from the chair of Peter and calls it new revelation, that is, that the Bible is to be interpreted through, uh, literally adding divine revelation that, that is on par with the Bible that they would call the church tradition. Or it's from me saying, uh, God told me that it's okay for me to leave my wife and kids and move to the Bahamas and follow the prophet Jimmy Buffett. Both of those things are coming from this same misguided idea that there was something to be added to right. Scripture. And I, just, I just thought it was so interesting about the Anabaptists because the Anabaptists, as a little as I read about them, but I got the impression that they were just so willing to die for their beliefs in, in water baptism by immersion was so important to them that they were people of the Word. So to hear that the Anabaptists were believing in extra revelatory and following that, just kind of, does that make sense? Like, no, it does. Like, wow, they were willing to die for that. They believe that water by immersion yeah. is so biblical that we're going to die for our beliefs. But to hear that they're following, so and I there's and there's difference reform. between what you call the radical reform, radical radical reformer Anabaptists, yeah. and sort of like the English Baptists that were Anabaptist and that baptized again since, but were still seeking to remain very much within the, the mainstream flow of Christian history. They weren't, they weren't heretics. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's heretical ones and there's the non-heretical ones. Uh, so you can't lump all the Anabaptists in one, in one uh, thing. The Anabaptists got really a bad rap because of this incident. I wish I could remember which city it was in Germany. It was a, I want to say it was a northern city. Uh, in Germany, when that happened, that put a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of people in Europe, and so they saw this sort of unhinged group who relied on this inner light of revelation. Quakers came from this, uh, right? And and so that that was how dangerous that was because there was no limit to it. You, you, you could just go anywhere with that, and they proved it in that instance. But for the most part, like you say, the Anabaptists weren't like that, uh, by and large. That was the worst of it. So, let's see here. So, the, the argument for the closure of the canon, um, it being now ceased, indicates a canon closure because God has done something already. God did that already, and it, and it matters. It makes a big difference. There's not a necessity for further revelation. In Luke 16, uh, 29, it's the, it's the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So the rich man's saying in, that uh, he's in Hades and he, and he, he says, hey, to, to, to Abraham, let, let, let Lazarus go and tell my brothers or, or let send somebody to tell my brother. I have five brothers. 
so that they don't end up here. And the answer was, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And if they don't hear them, then it won't matter. They're not going to turn and repent, even if somebody should come from the dead. So you see how the miracles and the empowerment of the apostles and Jesus validated their revelation as being real. Yet it did not empower, it wasn't those things that empowered their revelation to actually be believed by anyone. So I guess that's just to say that the sort of grasping at, if we just had a little bit more than what we have, if the faith was more visible, we would be more victorious in our mission to fulfill the Great Commission. It's just not true. Uh, we have all that we need uh, with with what's there, and the church has agreed on this uh, for for some great amount of time. I don't remember if I put it here. I don't want to go through all these scripture um, proofs, but there's a link that I there's a link that I put in here that that's just a it's, it's number two there at the bottom. Um, the first one at the bottom, number two. In terms of were the apostles authorized teachers of Jesus that taught things that were compatible with Jesus' teachings? Did they really have that authority? Did only they have that authority to produce scripture and so forth? Really good webpage there. Has a ton of uh, well-placed and organized uh, biblical citations that, that just make that argument. So I'll just... I'll leave that for your for your further study, but that is obviously the 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 position of the confession. That the canon is closed. There's no further revelation, at, at least that sort of revelation that is you know something I need to tell you. Some, somebody walked into Charles Spurgeon's church one time and said, "God told me that I am to preach in your pulpit today." I just heard this. Did you read that? <laughs> yeah, and so Charles Spurgeon's response to that was. Well, it's a bummer he didn't tell me. <laughs> so when people say, God told me this, great, he didn't tell me. <laughs> but we do have what's in Scripture. Uh, so section two, really quickly, this is a pretty easy one to get through, I think. Under the name of Holy Scripture, the word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. And then they go on to list the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 new, 66 books altogether, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the uh, rule of faith and life. And I'll say this, uh, try to wrap up with this, with this section. The idea of inerrancy is, is very much under attack today, that the scripture could be inerrant. And when we say inerrancy, if you want to go into what the orthodox position on that is, it's a lot more nuanced than a lot of people think. And the most complete explanation of that would be in the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. A lot of high, uh, highly regarded people were on that, uh, making that R.C. Sproul being one of them. And, and you can really get what they mean by that. It doesn't mean that uh, phenomenological language has to be accurate by modern standards and so forth or that or that they didn't use round numbers and this and that and the other good good document to read um but the whole idea of inerrancy is under attack and people are saying that basically it's a new thing that the reformers didn't believe in inerrancy that the early church fathers didn't believe in inerrancy 
Hogwash. They absolutely did. I mean, just, if this doesn't mean inerrancy, or at least imply inerrancy heavily, what does it mean? The word of God, a rule for faith and life, inspiration, that's practical inerrancy. Uh, if you look at Westminster uh, Confession uh, 1.5, it re- refers, referring to wh- why we should think that, this, that the Bible is the word of God, it says that we, you know, we see the entire perfection thereof. So perfection, that's basically inerrancy. Um, and it's not a new idea. There's a, there's a statement there at the bottom. It's in an exchange. It's in a letter from Augustine to Jerome where Jerome had sort of said, well, you know, Paul sort of told a white lie uh, <laughs> at this point. And Augustine says, absolutely not. Have you lost your mind? And his point is that if you admit that kind of charge to the scripture, you've lost the whole thing. You've sold, you've sold the farm. Forget about it. Um, there's, a, there's also a quote there right before that. The roots, this guy wrote, wrote this book called The Roots of Fundamentalism. I think it was in like 1981-ish when this came out. And he accused Hodge and Warfield in their uh, document called The Fundamentals of Creating uh, the Doctrine of Inerrancy based on reference to useless original autographs. And I'll let you look into that more if you wish. Um, so that's the end of section two. And we'll continue next week with section three. Any, any questions, comments about what we looked at? issues of today and, and um, uh, being witnesses and apologetics and and he took a stance that we don't claim that the Bible is inerrant and we claim of authority but we don't claim it's iner- it, it is inerrant and I was like I don't reconcile those two things so I don't know if I'm just, but anyway, just good to clarify that, you know, the yeah. Westminster stand, uh, stands on this. It does. The, yeah, the entire America, perfection thereof. <laughs> yeah. Modern day, Martin Luther, well now it's late, great, but, you yeah. know, but we have to stand on the word is inerrant. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you'll see there's a, there's a big push within big tent evangelicalism, you know, just the broader... That this should be accepted. Yeah, yeah. Um, broad evangelicalism, broadly evangelical world. I always call it broadleaf evangelicalism because it sounds like a plant. Um, to come up with something where they'll say, they'll even say the word is infallible, but not inerrant. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a hyper-nuanced thing they're trying to go for, but I, just, I don't think it holds up. It doesn't and hold up. it's going to lessen the credibility of, of what the Bible is. It's, it's a slippery slope. Those people that appear in the future. Yeah. It's a slippery slope. And, and what they're also... You're on that path before you, before you, get, you, know, you get too far. This is just a nice book. It cheapens the Word of God. Mm-hmm.
cast it, out. And as one guy said, and I think it, it might have been in that one I cited. No, it's not there. I can't remember. He's basically saying that if you read the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, where it talks about that the, the word of God is inerrant in its original autographs. Because we know, we can compare, you know, copies of the manuscripts and know that scribes made mistakes in copying. Our point is, is that we don't, we, textual criticism doesn't make, uh, doesn't prove that the word hasn't been preserved. It is God's method of preserving the word. We do textual criticism and we compare these 6,000 some odd manuscripts that we have now to come up with what is basically a perfect and errant word of God. We're not saying that, that, uh, that translations are inerrant, but we are saying that what we have is, is a faithful copy. May I tell you the funniest thing that I read in the Bible? Tell me the funniest. You know the verse in, I think it's Thessalonians, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. But anyway. I have a Bible that says godliness with contentment is great pain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lord. <laughs> so you're not an inerrantist. So you believe there's errors in Scripture. There is in that, <laughs> there is in that one, right? <laughs> but we were running out of time there in the sanctuary on Sunday, but I did want to kind of wrap up what, what I was getting at there. Uh, the people that are claiming that the Bible could be both infallible but in error are not satisfied with, say, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy because they think that inerrancy dies the death of a thousand qualifications. And I'm, I'm quoting uh, a particular guy who, who holds that position, um, that the Bible is infallible and yet it is not inerrant. And if you go read the Bible, the, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, there are a thousand qualifications. But I think it, there are a thousand qualifications we have to hold to and still maintain inerrancy. Uh, we don't say that when Jesus said that, this, that mustard seed was the smallest of the seeds, that he was being scientific when he said that. Uh, he wasn't making a scientific statement. He was communicating to people. If he would have said, and I have no idea what the smallest seed is, so forgive me, the, the spora microscopia is the smallest of the seeds that we know of now, uh, which may not be the smallest. If he would have said that, it would have been a meaningless statement to the people he was talking to. He didn't come to give a scientific worldview. He came to give truth that supersedes that, and he spoke to people in words they could understand. And that's one of the things that the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy speaks of. Uh, when, when the Bible speaks of the sun rising and the sun setting, it's using phenomenological language. Does the sun rise and set? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it does. And matter of fact, as far as the Weather Channel and the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are concerned to this day, the sun rises and sets, even though that may not be strictly true in a scientific sense. So there's lots of ways that we do have to responsibly caveat what we mean by inerrancy. Uh, are there a thousand qualifications? Sure, but is it dead because of that? Absolutely not. And then to just sort of wrap it up, 
it's certainly not tenable that the Westminster Confession of Faith would leave room for anything but an inerrant uh, concept of Scripture. And it has been so in the past that when there was a movement towards liberalism within Presbyterian churches that adhered to Westminster standards, that they would try to say uh, that you could do that, particularly in the uh, early 1900s. I don't remember which year it was exactly. It must have been the late 20s uh, or early 30s. The Auburn Affirmation was signed by well over a thousand Presbyterian ministers in the Northern Church, and a guy by the name of J. Gresham Machen, uh, for instance, responded against that. And their whole point was that there were five things that were being used as litmus tests on the confirmation uh, examination of ministers that they thought should not be. And those things were pretty you know, uncontroversial, I would say, actually today in the evangelical church. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, and so forth. Stuff that we would not really have a lot of arguments about, and yet people have tried to say that there's room within the Westminster standards for those positions. Utterly ridiculous. Uh, the Westminster standards have such a high view of Scripture that they would refer to uh, the entire perfection thereof, and they point us to a God who is the epitome of uh, perfection and who is perfecting us. Uh, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ.